Okay. Good morning. I need a Bible. There's my Bible. Didn't think this through this transition this morning here. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Uh, go to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter three. Can some Matt is Matt? Can you get me a glass of water? I usually don't sing before I preach. I mean, I sing, but not. My mouth is dry, and uh, I'm not gonna be able to say much without some water. Um, yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Eric, for those of you that don't know, Eric Miller. Um, I'm the teaching pastor at Mercy Hill. Um, going to make you be acknowledged for a little bit this morning, sweetie. Uh, this is my wife, Hannah. Maybe. <laughs> um, my second oldest son, Rowan. Finn. Little Jordy is somewhere. He hasn't escaped, has he? He's Okay, he's in children's church. He's, thank you, Paul. Thank you. Um, uh, and I have an older son, Ephraim, uh, who turns 17 in about a week. Um, yeah, you know how it goes. As the kids get older, you feel really old yourself, too. Uh, just want to say hi. I, I'm really like looking forward to getting to know more of you. Uh, this is the first time that I'll be preaching out here, and I, it was kind of a last-minute switch. Mark Russell was going to be here this morning. He's at the theater now. Uh, this was kind of the only Sunday that it really worked for me to get out here and to share with you a little bit between now and the first of the year. Lord willing, in 2023, uh, you'll probably be seeing a little bit more of me, uh, and I look forward, look forward to that. Um, but it's just good to be here. God's good, amen? He's good. He's doing good stuff. You know, Jesus is still on the throne. He's still saving people. He hasn't stopped doing that. He's still at work. He's still changing people's lives. Um, and he is the God that we, that we just got done singing to. Let me, uh, let me read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. We'll primarily be uh, focused on the first portion of it, um, but we'll read the whole thing. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. 
I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of, my, of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, thanks again for today. Uh, we again commit this time to you, and we ask now that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So, if I'm being honest, um, which I try to do, I try to be honest, uh, is when, I, when we made the decision, the elders and I, that I was going to come out here this morning, I was, I was, my first impulse was to kind of punt on talking about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I thought, hey, this is the only time that I'm going to get between now uh, and the first of the year to share with these guys. And I wanted to talk about um, something more ultimate, I guess. I wanted to talk about God's sovereignty, the gospel, um, you know, those, the, those, those things. Uh, and then I began to pray about what the Lord would have me share, and he just kept directing me back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Um, and in this passage, because I, I, you know, I know where we're going a little bit. Obviously, we do a Bible reading plan, and I know kind of what's coming, and I had, uh, you know, had a general idea of what was going on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and, you know, I saw a lot of verses, especially verses 6 through 13, that's talking about idleness and working, and I was like, Lord, this is my one time between now and the first year I'm going to get to talk with them. I'm not going to show up and just preach at them that they're all, like, lazy and not doing anything and uh, need to go get a job, because I don't think that that's, that that's the case. But that's not really the primary thrust of what's going on here, although it does play a role and we're going to talk about it, uh, but it's a little bit more robust and not as simplistic as, as that. Um, and I really am excited to share with you from this passage this morning, because I do feel like it's timely, not just for out here on the west side. And by the way, we just refer to us all as Mercy Hill, you guys are the west side, and we're on the east side. Um, we're not going to be flashing any gang signs or anything like that, but uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that. But, um, but the west side and the east side, but I think it's, I think it's uh, timely for all of us. And there are some ultimate things in this passage that I think we need to hear, and they're actually really, really, really important and it's really important that we keep them central to all that we do as a church. Um, and kind of the way I break this down is just kind of two sections. I want to talk about the mission of the church, and then I want, to, I want to talk about the enemies of the mission. There's two enemies. The mission of the church and the enemies of the mission. First of all, the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to... Let the gospel, as, and I'm just going to use the language that Paul uses here in verse 1, to let the gospel speed ahead and be honored. Okay? Um, if I had to say it just in terms that we would normally speak, or in, the, in a way that we would normally speak, it's to share the gospel. <laughs> it's to take the word of God forward. He says here in verse 1, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And, and this idea of speeding ahead, it's literally the, the, the picture of, of just running with great exertion. And I want you to notice here that Paul is giving them a prayer request. Now, Paul often throughout these letters, both First and Second Thessalonians, he prays for them. And there's another one of those in this passage. There's actually two of them. And we're going to look a little bit at them. But here, Paul is not praying this for them. He's asking them to pray this for him. And it's not that he wouldn't be praying it for them as well as a local church, but he's asking them to pray 
for him that as an apostle, as a missionary, as they go out and share the gospel, that the word of God would speed ahead and be honored. And then he says, as happened among you. And it, we've, we've talked about this as we've gone throughout these letters, is that what Paul saw happen in Thessalonica did not happen everywhere. Okay, not everywhere Paul went. He, he would see salvation in some measure, but the Thessalonian church um, was unique in that not only did they get saved, but then they entered into this life of discipleship and they embraced it. Okay, so, and I, and I say um, that not to be confusing as if like we can accept the gospel and not be disciples, but like read the book of Galatians. Paul lights them up. He is, like, Galatians, like, if you're feeling kind of bad about yourself, like, I don't know if you want to go read Galatians because it just sounds like Paul's angry and he's yelling at you. You read the book of First and Second Corinthians, um, as you read, like, they, I always tell our church, like, whenever I feel like things are going a little bit rough, I read First and Second Corinthians and I think, we're not that bad. <laughs> um, although we could be. Like, there, there's some radical issues, but not in Thessalonica. They had some issues and Paul's going to address one of them uh, here, but in Thessalonica, man, Paul preached the gospel, he was there for only a short time, and the power of the Holy Spirit came through that message, and it transformed people's lives. If you'll remember all the way back in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For you, for we know, brothers, loved by God, listen, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. Now, it had come everywhere. Everywhere Paul went, he went out preaching the gospel. But he says, our gospel came to you not only in word. It always came with words. But here it didn't just come with words. It came not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then he goes on a few verses later in verse 8 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. And he says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere that we need not say anything. That they got saved and they immediately began to enter into this life of discipleship and they lived their lives on mission, living out the gospel that had transformed their hearts and lives. Um, and Paul said here, he's got guys, pray that this would happen. And I, I just want to say this, is that the first mission of the church is that we are called to prayer. We are called to prayer. Um, if you'll remember, see, we, uh, one of the greatest fallacies of the American church is that we have adopted the, whether consciously or subconsciously, we have kind of adopted the mission statement of Larry the Cable Guy. You know what that is? Get her done. You ever, is it? Okay, never mind. Get her done. And so we think, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Tell me what to do and we'll make it happen. It's not the way the kingdom of God goes forward. The kingdom of God goes forward first, first through prayer. And why do we pray? Because we can't get her done. We can't make it happen. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms people's lives. And yes, the means that he is going to use is the proclamation, maybe from a stage, maybe in a church, maybe behind a pulpit, but maybe over coffee, maybe in the midst of a conversation. But as you share the gospel, the Holy Spirit is going to come. It's just like it was in the beginning. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was hovering over the surface of the deep. So the Spirit is there hovering, and God spoke let there be light. It is always a mingling of the spirit and the word that changes things. Always. 
in creation and also in the human heart. Always those things. And Paul said it didn't just come with words, but it came with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction of sin. And it is the first mission of the church to pray that this would happen. But not only to pray for it, but then also to live it out. To believe that the gospel still changes people's hearts and to, and to share that message. And folks, it's not a message of just self-help. It's not a message of of, of just life improvement. It's not a message of just, if you don't have purpose, then here, we'll give you a little bit of purpose. If you don't have self-esteem, we'll give you a little bit of self-esteem. The message of the gospel is that it brings dead people to life. And people who were once dead are now made alive through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is as we share this message, and yes, uh, we share it in different ways, in different forms, but it all comes back to this. That Jesus Christ is alive. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And that includes the west side. And the east side. And everywhere else in between and everywhere else going out from here. Is that our hope in preaching the gospel, our, our hope in small churches, our hope in, you know, we're having a partnership class tonight and a men's retreat this weekend and there's some women's ministry stuff coming up. Our hope in all of it is not just to get together and do good things to like make us busy because we all need more stuff to do, right? And just to, just to do that, our hope in all of it is that Jesus Christ is still on the throne. He has all authority and he has the authority to make dead people live. That's the message that we preach. That's the Jesus that we serve. That's the Jesus that we just got done singing to. And yes, we need to embrace the message, but it needs to start with prayer. You'll remember that uh, Jesus was adamant about this too. And again, it's very counterintuitive when you first hear it, but you'll probably remember that story in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus saw great crowds, it says, and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then do you know what comes next? He doesn't just say, go out and get them saved. Go out into the harvest. What does he say? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Next verse. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It always starts with prayer. Now, right on the heels of that, that is the very last verse. Verse 38 of Matthew chapter 9. It says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Now the very next verse is the beginning of chapter 10. It says, and he called to him the 12 disciples and he gave them authority and then it goes through their names. And then in verse 5 it says, these 12 Jesus sent out. The point simply being is that I'm just, it's kind of a, Jesus is sneaky, okay? Sneaky, a good sneaky, sneaky in a good way, is that when you begin to pray for the mission, get ready for him to send you on the mission. When you begin to pray for the gospel to go forward, get ready for him also to use you in some very specific ways uh, to take that gospel forward. Is that many times... We're always praying, okay, let's say we pray this verse, I pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out labors into his harvest. And we're always thinking, who's he going to send? And God goes, I'm going to send you. 
early on in your Christian walk, I don't know if it's like this for you, but very early on in my Christian walk, there's just a lot of firsts that I remember. And, and I remember this principle being kind of hammered home to me early on. We, uh, I graduated in the spring of 2000. Um, the Lord really grabbed a hold of my heart about a month after I graduated. Uh, a few weeks after that, I was planning on starting, or about a month or so after that, I was planning on starting uh, some classes at the Kent State branch down in Tuscarawas County. But after the Lord got a hold of my heart, I just had no peace about going to college at all. And just through a kind of a divine appointment, I was over at a friend's house uh, just a couple weeks before classes were getting ready to start. And uh, he told me that he was going to go travel on this ministry team. He made it sound super like official, like it was a real legit organization. Um, it wasn't. It was me and three other guys in an old 1980s wood grain Dodge Caravan. Um, but anyway, he invited me to go on, the, to come on. The, and I, it sh- that should have been a sign that like there was no application process. He just goes, hey, you want to come along and travel with me? I was like, yeah, sure. And so I went home that night and I told my mom, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to go travel with these, with these guys. And uh, praise the Lord for my mom. She had enough <laughs> discernment to know that in the, like God was doing something in my life. Uh, in that season. Um, she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so I ended up going and traveling with these guys. And we would just get into like detention centers, youth centers. Every now and then a church would let us speak on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, uh, the name, our little name was called Sold Out Ministries. S-O-U-L-E-D. Get it? So, yeah. Uh, a better name would have been Ignorance on Fire um, for us. But uh, we, did, we did all sorts of skits and we would share our testimonies and things like that. We didn't really know what we were doing, but God worked despite us, not because of us, and we saw him change people's lives through our silly little skits and our testimonies and just sharing the simple gospel. But I remember one place, it was a little town called Langley, Oklahoma, even smaller than Millersburg, okay? Maybe Glenmont-ish, okay? And there was a little storefront church, and we had been doing some meetings there all week where we would we had one guy on the that would play keys and lead worship and then we would you know share something that the Lord's laid on our heart do our little skits and stuff and uh, there was a girl that had been coming to these meetings all week that we had found during the course of the week the pastor had told us that uh, he knew that she had a pretty rough home life and that uh, uh, her father especially was abusive and this was one of the first times that I remember God, so obviously that's heartbreaking, um, but this was one of the first times that I really remember God really burdening my heart for something. Do you know what I mean? And so throughout the week, I just began to pray, and it was the last night of the meetings, and we'd been praying that her dad would come. And, uh, and lo and behold, he came to the meeting that night. Okay, So we do a little thing. I forget who spoke. I didn't do anything. And at the end, we're doing... We're doing our worship. And my role was, do you remember the overhead projector? Yes, transparencies, everybody following. My role was, I couldn't sing, I couldn't play anything, but my role was to be the overhead man. You know what I mean? So I would take the little transparencies and I'd slide them up and down so you could get the right words on the screen. So I'm just doing that. And as the guys leading worship or whatever, and we're singing at the end, I just felt like the Lord was leading me to go over to lay my hands on this guy and just pray for him, this dad uh, and his daughter that were there. 
And, uh, and I was just fighting it. And I was like, no, I've been praying for him all week. But I was like, Lord, somebody else, somebody else, not me. And, uh, uh, and so the song is coming to an end. And I'm feeling this, you know, kind of pressing from the Holy Spirit to do this. And, uh, but, but I don't do it. And the song ends. And I thought, oh, man, I missed my opportunity. And the pastor comes up and he goes, you know what? We're going to sing that song one more time. And, uh, so, and, and I was like, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going to go. So I go over, and I leave, my, I leave my post at the transparency, you know, overhead thing. And I go over, and I, it wasn't any big thing. I just kind of snuck over there. And I just laid my hands on, my, on his shoulder. I said, hey, can I, can I pray for you? And he just kind of go. And he was all tatted up, like I thought, Lord, he, you know, he looked like a big, rough, and tough guy, you know. thought he might punch me or something. But he just nods his head. And I began to pray for him, and he just began to weep. And he just began, and he just, just began to bawl. And, uh, um, and God did something in his life. Now, I share all that, stor- that story because, to illustrate this point, is that throughout the week, I'd been praying like crazy that God would send him someone else. But when we begin to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field, it's probably going to be you are going to be one of the people that he's going to call. And again, as we're talking about the mission of the church here this morning and Paul praying about the word speeding ahead, being honored, transforming lives, brothers and sisters, we all play a role in this. We all play a role in it. it it's, um, I don't really like the idea of calling us God's team Okay, because God will do what he does, you know. But the church is the bride of Christ. If you remember in the beginning, Adam and Eve, he created Adam, but it was not good for man to be alone. And so he created Eve to be his helpmeet. It's kind of what we are as the church to to Christ. He's the one really doing the mission. He's the one that transforms people's hearts and lives. He's the one that, that ultimately brings people from death to life. But... In his plan, he's called us to join him in what he's doing. And our job is to pray and to preach the gospel and to believe that he's still going to do this. That the word of the Lord is going to speed ahead and to be honored. Whether it's on the west side, the east side, north, south, east, west, up, down, left, right, you know. It's what, it's what he's doing. And we get to be a part of it. Um, and if you jump down to verse 5, and here's one of these little prayers that Paul prays for them. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And again, he's praying this now for the Thessalonian church. But, uh, again, is this not... Is this not what people need? Like earlier in that passage I read in Matthew about um, Jesus seeing them and they were harassed like sheep without a shepherd. People's hearts are wandering. They're drifting all over. And what Paul prays here for the Thessalonian church, and ultimately, again, this is where people's hearts can come when we share the gospel, when we we pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead, is that their hearts would be directed. It's a very strong word. 
It's like we sang earlier, when the sun comes up, satisfy us before the day has passed us by, before our hearts forget all your goodness. Every morning, my heart wants to drift. But we can pray with confidence that the Lord wants to establish our hearts. He wants to direct our hearts to the love of Christ, it says in verse 5, and to the steadfastness of, of Christ. The love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Is that how you describe your heart this morning? Is your heart as you came in here this morning, was it directed to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ we so often pray for the outward, but Paul was constantly praying for the inward. As you trace and, and uh, just kind of go through and look at his prayers, especially throughout the book of First and Second Thessalonians, he's constantly praying for their hearts. Just one other place at the end of chapter 2, right before this, he says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts. And again, the same idea, and establish them in every good work. He's constantly praying for their hearts. And this is what needs to happen, is that people's hearts are wandering. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And the mission of the people of God is to pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead, but also not just to pray, but to preach it, to share it, and to welcome people into the family. This is the mission of the church. But now, let's move on here. I want to talk about two enemies of this mission. So the mission of the church is that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored through prayer and through sharing the gospel. But there are enemies of the church. I'm going to put these enemies into two different categories. First of all, the enemy without. And then we'll talk about the enemy within. The enemy without is who you'd think it is. It's Satan. It's, it's the evil one. And those who are walking in darkness. You know, Ephesians chapter 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But did you catch it? We, we all lived among them at one time. When we were walking in darkness, that was Satan's domain. But now we've been brought into the kingdom of light. Uh, but he says here in the middle of, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, that verse 2 and 3 of the beginning of chapter 3, he says that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. He says, for not all have faith. In verse 3, but the Lord is faithful and he will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. Now, it, it's, it's, a, it's one little word here um, in the Greek. It, one is, you know, we have to put that in there to kind of make, have it make sense in English. It's literally just the evil, but because there's the definitive article, the, it, it is speaking not just about evil in general, but it is speaking about the evil and one is implied. And he's speaking about Satan here. The word here that he uses for evil is the word paneros. And let me just give you a quick uh, general rundown from the Strong's uh, uh, dictionary. But it means to be full of labor, annoyances, hardships, harassments, perils, pains, troubles, and bad nature. That's what he does, isn't it? That's what the devil does. He wants to make our life full of labors, annoyances. I like that annoyances is actually in the strong. I like that. Because how many of you are like, I'm just, I'm just annoyed. You know where that comes from. You know where that comes from. The evil one is, is behind it. This word, paneros. And, and he's out to distract us from the mission of God. He's out to pull us away from what 
God wants for us. And Paul was no stranger to this. You remember back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul said, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person and not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Paul was concerned that the enemy was going to lead them astray. He says later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and your labor would be in vain. We're in a battle, folks. We're in a very real battle. But the enemy, in bringing all of, his, all of these labors and annoyances and hardships and harassments and perils and pains and troubles, it's not just about being a meanie. It's about, from, about getting the people of God distracted from the mission that Christ has given us. That's what it's about. And the enemy from without wants to keep us from this. He wants to get us to believe the lie that Jesus isn't on the throne. He wants to get us to believe the lie that there is no purpose that he wants to fulfill out here on the west side. But that's exactly what it is. It's a lie. Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's been given to him and he's told us to go. And he's still bringing dead people to life. Um... Sometimes in our uh, elders' meetings, Matt and Conrad and I, uh, I've noticed myself saying this lately. Matt, I don't know if you've caught this, but um, God is always doing good stuff. But there's always some paneros from the enemy as well, too. There's always some labors, annoyances, hardships, harassments, perils, pains, and troubles. And I don't know why Sometimes I just think, well, when, when's it going to stop? I, I came to bring you good news this morning, but hang with me, okay? Folks, it's not going to stop. And one of the things, to finish my thought earlier, is one of the things I've heard us, at least me saying a lot in our elders' meetings, it's always something. It's always something. Can I just, just lock in, just get, just get that mindset. Not like negativity, not like, oh, woe is me, not like, oh, no, I'm despairing and hoping. No, but just no, it's always going to be something. It's always going to be something. Amen. But Jesus is alive. He's on the throne. And he set it up this way. If I can just really quick, I, I probably shouldn't even wander into this, but I will. Um, real big picture, theologically. Satan w- was once called Lucifer. His name means bright or shining one. He was the most glorious of all of God's created beings, and that's what he was. He was a created being. Okay? Many people think, because there's some reference in either Ezekiel or Isaiah, that when he would, when he would talk or sing, it was like, basically like pipe organ. Some people think he was kind of like the worship leader in heaven. I don't know. I wouldn't get real hard and fast about that. But he was a very glorious being, the most glorious of all of God's created beings as an angel. But because he was a created being, just like everything that God has made, he was made and required to live in dependence upon God. Everything is. We're all made to live in dependence upon God. His sin was that he desired with all of his heart to live independently of God. Okay? 
When that happened, and he, he, again, he wanted the glory for himself. We don't have time to look at all the passages that talk about this. But God cast him down. He punished him because he desired and really thought that he could live independently of God. Okay? God creates man. Um, don't have time to go into all this. Uh, two places you could look at Hebrews chapter 2, Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 especially says it like this. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now here, here's the point, is that God cr- then creates man in his own image. We are not as like naturally glorious as Lucifer was, just in the terms of like our being of who we are. We have bodies that are kind of like bound. And yes, they're tainted by sin now, but even then we were kind of in one place at one time. That's kind of how, how, how we moved around. God makes man, and again, according to Psalm 8, he makes us a little bit lower than the angels, lower than the heavenly beings. And I don't understand all this, okay? So, and again, I'm not trying to cause more confusion, and don't hear me saying anything that I'm not, but like, for whatever reason, God allows the enemy to be there in the garden. And I think... One of God's purposes, I don't think this is a great theological leap, you tested for yourself, but I think one of the things that God is doing is that he is displaying his name. In fact, I don't even think, I know this is true because Ephesians chapter 3 says that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, angels and demons. But hang with me here. Is that God is displaying his glory to these spirit beings by showing them that he can do less, or he can do more with less, i.e. man, when that less is dependent upon him, than he will with the more that is living independently of him. Does it make sense? You follow me? He creates man a little lower than the he's saying, look, just be dependent upon me. Now, of course, Satan comes in and he gets Adam and Eve to fall, and we've all sinned, but guys, we still walk, we can walk in victory and we can walk in the authority of Jesus Christ when we live in dependence upon who he is and everything the enemy wants to get us to do. He wants to distract us. He wants us to you know, bring these labors, annoyances, hardships, harassments, perils, pains, and troubles to get us to try to take control, to try to live independently of God. And once that happens, the victory goes away. The power goes away. But we can live moment by moment in the victory that's been provided for us by Jesus Christ as we live in humble dependence upon him. And here's the thing, whether we acknowledge it or not, dependence is just a matter of whether or not you're acknowledging it. Like, (laughs) we're always dependent upon him. Everybody, deep breath. That was from him. We don't know how many more we get. It's true for every one of us, no matter how young or old we are. And the way that we fight this enemy quickly is, yes, by living in dependence upon God, but you'll see how this goes together. It's by trusting in his promises. Okay, so verse 3 again, he says, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Okay, so wherever there's um, this conflict, and again, it's always going to be something and the enemy's trying to get us distracted from the mission of God, uh, the way that we go forward in victory is by trusting his promises. And one of the ones that Paul gives here is just a very broad one, verse 3. The Lord is faithful. 
The Lord is faithful. When you feel attacked, when you feel hopeless, when you feel in despair, when you feel like there is no victory, when you feel like it's just always going to be the same thing and you can't get set free, you've got to go to the promises of God. And you've got to start by just simply, Lord, I don't even see this outwardly right now. Outwardly right now, I don't see the victory. Nothing seems like it changes. But Lord, I believe that you are faithful. And I believe that you can still raise the dead. And I believe that you can still change this situation. Whatever it might be. But we do it by going to the promises of God. And believing that he's, he's good and he's able to... And he's able to see us through to the end. But honestly, I spent a little bit more time on that than I wanted to. The enemy without, outside the church, the enemy of the mission outside the church, it's a big one. But it's not the one that I think Paul was most concerned with, and it's not the one that I want to be concerned with um, as much this morning. The bigger enemy is the enemy within the church. The enemy within. And this is what Paul spends the majority of his time speaking on here in verses 6 through 13. The language that he uses, just to point this out, you see where I'm getting this from, is this, are, are two words. One is the word idle or idleness. You'll see it in verse 6. Last part of verse 6. Any brother who is walking in idleness. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how, we ought to, how you ought to imitate us, that we were not idle. So he's saying we weren't that. Okay. Um, you'll see it again down in verse 11. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness and then the second word follows right on the heels of that the end of verse 11 he says for we hear that some of you walk in idleness not busy at work but busy bodies did you know the word busy bodies was in the bible isn't that kind of weird i don't know it's just unique it's the only time it's used um and ironically again so when i see the word busy bodies in the bible i'm like i thought that was kind of like a i don't know just kind of like an english slang word but when you look it up in the greek it's this word I shouldn't even try to pronounce it, but I will. Perergadzomai? Perergadzomai? Whatever. Um, but here's what it means, okay? It means to bustle about uselessly and to busy oneself about trifling, needless, useless matters. And then you combine that with the word idleness or idle, which is this Greek word ataktos, which means disorderly or out of ranks. It's, it's the idea of a soldier who's walking in line Okay, with everybody else, but then all of a sudden everybody's walking along and the soldier just goes, eh, and just goes walking and just goes, and just goes walking off. So you've got, the, so this word for idleness, I want to be clear here. Again, he, it does have to do with they weren't working. He says um, uh, in verse 8, he says, nor did we eat anyone's bread or work without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Um, he he says down in verse 10, he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And, and I want to be clear here, because I, I want to try to explain what he's, what he's describing here. It did have something to do without, not, about not actually working for a living. That's part of it, but it's not the whole of it. It's not just that they were couch potatoes, sitting around eating, eating potato chips and letting the cable TV or Netflix watch over them. It's not just that, because of this word busybodies. They were actually very busy, but here's what they weren't busy on. They weren't busy on mission. They were busy about everything else other than the mission that Christ had given them. And yes, part of it was that they weren't working and they were kind of being lazy and kind of bumming off some other people. But they weren't just sitting there idle. They were actually doing quite a bit. But not the mission 
that they were to be praying for and that they were to be walking in. They were busying themselves in other people's affairs. If I had to sum it up in today's vernacular, here's what I believe Paul is describing. I don't think that this is a stretch. But again, you decide from the text, and I'll continue to try to show show this to you. But I think what Paul is describing here is what we would describe today as consumer Christianity. He is describing a Christian, maybe even a group of Christians who have gotten off the mission and it's not like they're unconcerned about nothing but they're unconcerned about the mission and they're very concerned about stuff that does not matter ultimately. This is the enemy from within. The Thessalonian church was a really solid church. And that's another reason why we should take this idea here and this warning that Paul is giving to us about being idle and a busybody, i.e. consumer Christianity, why we should take it so seriously. Because folks, this, this mindset and attitude of being a consumer Christian, it gets the best of us. It's not just the worst that are susceptible. It gets the best churches. Um, I believe it was 1950-ish are when transatlantic flights really became kind of mainstream. Before that, if you wanted to transverse the Atlantic Ocean, America to Europe or whatever, um, you would usually take a ship, okay? Uh, but by 1950, it was becoming, it was becoming more, more popular. Um, before that, there really wasn't a massive cruise boat industry in the way that we see it today. But what you had was you would have these ships that were primarily used for, used for function. People would get on them, and it's like, okay, so my son and two of the interns and I were getting ready to fly down to Columbia here in about a week and a half to visit one of our missionaries down there. And we are not flying first class, um, although be more than willing to if I could somehow get an upgrade. But anyway, it's, you know, and you're just, you're just packed in there. It's just about functions, about how many people you can get in there. That's how, that's how ships used to be. It was just like, get people in, get them going, get them, get them to their destination, right? It served the purpose of getting people to their next destination. But you think about the cruise industry today, okay? And again, once the first transatlantic flight, now you have these ships and, well, people don't want to travel this anymore. So let's just, you know, let's, let's take every other bed out. Let's give a little bit more room. Let's put a pool and a slide and have a buffet and, you know, all, all this stuff. And now, those ships that once used to get people to their destination, they've become boats that go to nowhere, right? It's kind of funny when you think about it because you, you start in a place, you go, and yeah, you hit little different ports, but then you come right back, right to where you started. They are cruise ships that go to nowhere. And the whole point is now not to get you to a destination. It's all about just the ride, the joy ride, right? And so, yeah, we, you know, and again, I, I've never been on a cruise. I would like to go. I'm not knocking cruises. I would love to go sometime. But, um, you know, you eat the buffet, you're going down the slide and into the pool and laying out on deck or whatnot. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. 
the church of Jesus Christ, and by the grace of God, Mercy Hill Church, we're not a cruise ship. We're a battleship. The Lord has brought us together to take the mission forward. He has brought us together that the word of the Lord might speed ahead and be honored. He has brought us together for the purpose of making disciples who make disciples. That is why we're here. That's what it's all about. Amen? Um, it is, and if I can just press on this for a little bit, I think, I, I don't think I need to convince you on this. I, I've experienced, I bet you've experienced it too. Is that it's very possible for the church, just like a cruise ship, to become a place of unbelievable activity and yet no productivity. Um, Lots of words and opinions. Well, I didn't like that meal, or I didn't like, you know, the pool's too cold, or the pool's too hot, or, oh, that slide's not, you know, too steep, or whatever. Lots of opinions, but no growth in God's word, no understanding. It's possible for the church to become a place where there's a lot of meetings, but no movement towards maturity. It's possible for the local church to become simultaneously a place of great busyness to the point where people, not just pastors, but people are burned out and yet no one's encouraged. It's when we get off the mission of what God has called us to do. We have to keep the mission of Jesus Christ central. That's what it's all about. And, and again, in the text here, just one or two more brief points and I'll be done is that this is so, so practical. And this is what I love about 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Like Paul so fleshes out discipleship in a relational context with these people. But here's what I want to say. Is that dysfunction of any sort, and in the specific context here, it's this idea of being a busybody or a consumer Christian, being idle. But I don't care what the dysfunction is. The dysfunction of any sort is remedied through prayer and discipleship. It is remedied through prayer and and discipleship. Paul says here in verses 7, 8, and 9, and 10, he says, for you yourselves know how, we, how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread. So in other words, we gave you an example. That's what he says in verse 9. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example. This is how discipleship works. And, here, and here's how it starts, folks. When a church gets off mission, when we get distracted by the enemy, when we begin to think that it's a cruise ship and not a battleship, um, it starts subtly and it starts little by little, but here's what happens, is we disciple each other into that. One person's doing it and then another person sees it and then a couple people are doing it and then some other people see it to the point where it spreads throughout a culture of a local church. And again, it can happen anywhere. It can happen anywhere, which is why we need, we need to be on guard. But here's how it's remedied. We have to live lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. We have to all be pursuing maturity together to live on mission and to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Um, and we need to take ownership we need to take ownership and understand that, and again, I'm, for, is anybody coming to the partnership class tonight? 
Anybody? We'll talk a lot about this at partnership class tonight. But I'll say it here for you this morning as well. There's one thing I want you to get. It's this. You do not get to choose whether or not you impact the culture of Mercy Hill Church. You don't get to choose whether or not you impact it. The question is, how will you impact it? Are you going to impact it by being a disciple who makes disciples, someone who prays for the mission, someone who preaches the mission, shares the mission? Or will you be a consumer Christian? And I'm saying the same thing to myself. Believe me, just because I wear a pastor hat does not mean that I cannot fall into this ditch. It's very easy to do. But every single one of us plays a role in making the church what it's supposed to be and what God encourages it to be. In the same way that parents, you don't get to choose whether or not you influence your kids. It's just a matter of how you're going to influence them. And sometimes, when I speak of taking ownership, and one more, and again, I know we're really, like we got on the ground hard and fast here, and the, wheel, and the wheels are squeaking, but again, I want to stay in the text. Look at verses 14 and 15. Okay. Paul says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And again, in the context, it's like, don't, don't become idle. Don't become a consumer Christian. It's easy to become a consumer Christian. Saying, don't, don't grow weary in it. Why would he say that? Because it's easy to grow weary in it. It's easy to become weary of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, but we, it's, it's not an option that our Lord and Savior gives us. And then verse 14 and 15, look at this. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Verse 15, but do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is very practical, brass tacks, rubber meets the road discipleship, is that if you want to be an obedient, thriving, healthy disciple of Jesus Christ, and if we want to have a culture of healthy discipleship and maturity at Mercy Hill. And brothers and sisters, we have got to get used to hard conversations. Can I get an amen? Maybe. You do. We do. It's the only way to end consumer Christianity. And I'm not saying it's here, but I'm saying watch out for it, and there will not be a day that um, discipleship will not require this. Discipleship is always going to require taking ownership. And if I can just flesh this out real quick, if I come to Pat with just a, a word of gossip about somebody else within the church, it's very easy for Pat to go, oh, Eric, I understand. I just, yeah, I know. They're like that. Well, you know, Pat's job, what I'm talking about is Pat's job as a disciple of Jesus Christ is to say, Eric, you got to watch yourself. I do understand. We've all been there. But Eric, it feels like you're gossiping to me about this person right now. And Eric, that's not what Christ requires of us. That's not what Christ calls us to. Eric, keep your eyes on Jesus and the mission that he's given us. Eric, I just want to encourage you and remind you that, remember, it's about the gospel. It's about making disciples. It's not about these petty little things on the cruise ship. Because it's not. Are you with me? 
That's the responsibility of every one of you, including myself. This is how the mission goes forward. Um, I'm going to tell a story that I hesitate to tell, but I'm going to anyway, because it's one of those stories that's really hard to explain. It, you kind of had to be there, okay? I don't know if anyone, I know Pat was, beyond that I'm not sure, but several years ago, just on one evening here, I think it was on a Sunday night, we did a little thing along with a friend of mine at the time called the Grace Conference. Was anybody here for that? A few, Pat, maybe it was just Pat, yeah. Um, and so it was just one night we just, again, we're, we're big on God's grace. God's grace changes people. That's the essence of the gospel, is that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He is for us all that we could not be for ourselves. Um, but I was speaking that night on the prodigal son and how so much of the mission, we, we make it this hard, difficult thing. And, and yeah, it, we can't grow weary and there's enemies without, there's enemies within. That's, that's, that's true. But the essence of what we have to share, the essence of our mission, is that, guys, we have good news, <laughs> right? You remember the story of the prodigal son? Everybody's invited into a party. Everyone's invited into a party. The prodigal son, who'd wasted away his inheritance, and the older son that the father goes out and pleads with to come in. And then as I, as I was wrapping this up, all, all evening long, this is the part that you kind of had to be there, but I'll never forget it. All evening long, I think it was set up a little bit different. I was standing down there. But right from the beginning when we came in, I don't know if there was a Bible school or something going on, but there was one balloon stuck up there on the cross. And, and uh, I just, it just, I mean, if I'm honest, and this is just my pettiness, it, it bothered me. I was like, why, can we get that down? Like, why is that balloon, like, Again, it was, it was just, it was helium filled. It just kind of like floated up there and got stuck. And, uh, and I, we kept making jokes about the balloon or whatever on the cross. But in the middle of that sermon, as I was kind of wrapping up and talking about this party that God in, invites us into, it just hit me. And I turned around and I pointed to that balloon and it was like, that was there for a reason. And I just told everybody that I just felt like it was kind of like a little, little sign, a little gift from God that reminded us that, guys, there's a party that God is inviting us to invite other people into. And the party is the gospel itself. No matter what you've done, and no matter what anyone else has done, the cross of Jesus Christ is enough to cover it. The cross of Jesus Christ, yes, it is a screaming testimony to the fact that we are sinners that deserve punishment. But the resurrection is a screaming testimony to whatever we once were in Christ. We are not that any longer. He brings dead people to life and I just want to call all of us especially myself this morning I truly need this for my own heart today I want to call us all again to remember that we have been called to invite people into this party amen it's such good news 
The world needs to hear it. Stand with me. And let me awkwardly transition one more time.